You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. John chapter 10, verses 1 to 21. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and they know the sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? We sound a bit repetitive every week when we say that there's so much, (laughs) but gosh, there's a lot in there. I hope you're joining us as we read through the book of John, diving into this rich, rich material. Um, There's so much there. We'll just do a drop in the bucket this morning. This morning, we do have two of the John I am statements to sit with. I am the gate for the sheep, and I am the good shepherd. And we'll look at both of them this morning. I wanted to begin with recapping chapter 9, because it's, it's, I, I, having, having been reading in John up to chapter 10 helped me read this passage in a new way. For example, John 10.10, 10, that really well-known, oft-repeated verse, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that what? They. (laughs) 
Is, you know, when I, whenever I quote that to someone, it's always you. Um, but it's not, it's not you in the text. It's not you because Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. He's speaking to people who think they aren't blind. And he's, he's referring to the people who are outside of the temple, who are, who are the blind, people that the Pharisees assume are on the outside of the people of God. I have come that they may have life and life abundantly. And it's an offer that Jesus extends to all people, but the people who will receive it will be them, the blind, the people who recognize their need for it, um, that they may have life. The Pharisees have just been presented with a miraculous healing again, a sign of Jesus' messianic power and a foretaste of the kingdom to come, but they are blind. The serious religious scholars are so concerned about the laws of the Sabbath that they miss the Lord of the Sabbath when he speaks directly to them. They're so concerned about protecting the walls around God's people that they miss the one who is the gate. They're so focused on the words of God through Moses that they miss the word of God. I am the door. What does this claim mean for us? There's a couple different ways to understand this claim. Of course, it is right to say that Jesus' claim to be the gate for the sheep means that Artemis, the god who has a statue in Ephesus, is not the gate for the sheep. Artemis is not the way to commune with the creator and living God. It's not Artemis. It means that other messiahs and religions who claim to be the pathway to abundant life with God are counterfeit pathways that lead to dead ends and death. Jesus saying, I am the gate, implies a rejection of all others who claim to be the pathway unto communion with God and the abundant life that flows from that communion. But beyond being a claim against others who claim to be the gate, the door, I've really struggled with how to articulate this. It's also a claim of singularity. It's a simple and singular claim that cannot be added to and cannot be taken from. I think sometimes when we hear this passage, I am the gate for the sheep, we imagine that Jesus is shrinking the gate, the door. But he's talking to the Pharisees. And Jesus is not, you know, I picture like a matador with the red flag of salvation, waving it in front of people, seeing if they can charge after it and, and, and hit it just right. As if, as if Jesus is saying, I am the gate and good luck, you know, good luck believing appropriately or finding me or good luck getting in. But Jesus is not shrinking the gate. He's expanding it. The Pharisees have such a narrow view of God's salvation for the world. And Jesus is saying, your narrow view, which does not apply to all of them, is incorrect. I am the gate for the sheep and I have come that they may have life and life abundantly. Jesus is telling the small group of leaders that in fact, the blind and unsuspecting simpletons are the ones for whom he came to bring life and life abundantly. Jesus' claim to be the gate is a simple and singular claim that cannot be added to and cannot be taken from. An example of this. 
On the 24th of February in 1920, Adolf Hitler in Munich, Germany, in a beer hall in Munich, Germany, laid out for the first time ever the 25 points of the German workers' movement, which would later be renamed the Nazi Party. The 24th point of that platform says this, quote, the party as such represents the viewpoint of positive Christianity without binding itself to any particular denomination. Positive Christianity. That sounds good, right? Positive Christianity. You already know that it's not going to be good. <laughs> Hitler claimed to be Catholic throughout his career. Germany in 1920 was 99% Christian and 1% other, including Jewish. And the platform of the Nazi party was essentially to exterminate or get rid of that 1% that wasn't Christian and white. Positive Christianity was the rhetoric that was used by the Nazi party to talk about their own faith convictions. Because early on in his career, Hitler realized that he was going to need to marry his ideology with Christian thought in order to gain favor in the church in Germany. Positive Christianity was this attempt. Positive Christianity focused on the positive aspects of, of Jesus' ministry, his ability to rally people, to stir people, to, to start a movement, to be revolutionary. It didn't focus on what they called the negative aspects, the death, the cross, the suffering, the serving. It also, of course, denied his Jewishness, Hitler had the unfortunate fact for him that Jesus happened to be a brown Jewish man, which is an unlikely person for Adolf Hitler to follow. And so positive Christianity eliminated Jesus' Jewishness by not accepting the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, as authoritative. It eliminated the genealogies of Jesus that so clearly locate Jesus within the story of Jewish people. It even made the claim, I don't, I don't get, I, don't, I can't explain how they got there, but it makes the claim that Jesus is Nordic, and one person within this group also claims that um, the, the, the church has become corrupt by denying the German aspects of Jesus' life. Guilty as charged. Um, in 1937, Hans Kerl, the Reich Minister for Church Affairs, of positive Christianity, described, said that it was not dependent upon the Apostles' Creed, red flag, nor was it dependent upon faith in Christ as the Son of God, red, red flag, upon which Christianity relied. Rather, it was represented by the conviction that, quote, the Fuhrer is the herald of a new revelation. Anyone who enters by the sheep pen by some other way as a thief and robber. In 1933, Nazis came to power in Germany, and Ludwig Müller was elected the imperial bishop of the evangelical church. He was a Nazi sympathizer, and he began to move the German evangelical church's policies into line with the Nazi movement, expelling Jews and non-Aryans, changing church membership policies, embracing a theology subservient to the new revelation of the Fuhrer. In February of 1994, the Protestant Youth Organization, you know, in a few weeks we're sending our kids off to kick um, this youth conference, right? In 1934, um, 
Mueller joined the Protestant youth movement with the Hitlerjugend, the Hitler youth, so that there was now one youth movement shaping 14 to 18-year-old boys in Germany. 600,000 members of the Protestant youth movement were now a part of the Hitler youth movement. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. One of the men, one of the pastors, who did not recognize that stranger's voice in the church was Martin Niemöller, who began a coalition to resist what was happening in the evangelical church in Germany. He's famous for his quote, um, first they came for the communists and I didn't say anything because I was not a communist, and then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out for I was not a Jew. Finally, they came for me and there was no one left to speak out. The coalition that Niemöller led gained the attention of the Nazi party and lives were soon at risk. One of those lives was also Diedrich Bonhoeffer who spent World War II training students and pastors in a resistance movement, in an underground resistance movement. He was finally arrested while he was a part of a group that was trying to get a a group of Jews out of Germany. He was arrested while this was happening um, and, and brought to a concentration camp where it was uncovered that he was a key informant for the Allied forces. And in 1945, he was hung in Flossenburg concentration camp. And then a third figure in the resistance against what was happening in Germany was Karl Barth, who was a giant in the theological world in the 20th century. I mentioned that in February of 1934, the youth movements were joined. In May of 1934, the churches finally took a unified stance, though it risked many of their lives. And Karl Barth was the primary author of the Barman Declaration, and this is, this is why I tell this story, the Barman Declaration. The Barman Declaration, in its opening, says this, With gratitude to God, we are convinced that we have been given a common word to utter. And in the very first point, of his, it's, a, it's not a long document, you can look up the whole thing, it's lovely. The very first point of the Barman Declaration says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way. That man is a thief and a robber. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. It then says, Jesus Christ, as testified to us in Holy Scripture, is the one word of God which we must hear, trust, and obey in life and in death. Jesus is the gate for the sheep. You cannot add to it. And you cannot take from it. It is simple and it is singular. What had happened in Germany was slowly over time, things had begun to be added to the lordship of Jesus, which so obviously contradicted with his life, death, and resurrection, and questioned his lordship. A similar thing, a totally different circumstance, Totally different circumstance, but a very similar sort of theological point is made in the Belhar Confession. The Belhar Confession is written in 1982 in Afrikaans, adopted by the Dutch Reformed Mission Church in South Africa in 1986. 
The Dutch Reformed Mission Church declared after a lot of ecumenical global conversations about apartheid that apartheid required an ecclesial response, a church response to what was happening in South Africa along the lines of church membership, where they identified that human and social factors were becoming a consideration in determining membership of the church. Issues that at one point had been divisive had been raised to the level of gate and door issues. And so what is the Belhar? The Belhar is a much longer document, but it says in the very first point this, that true faith in Jesus Christ is the only condition for membership of the church universal. One Lord, one body, one cup, one bread. Jesus is the gate for the sheep. It is a singular and simple declaration. And this is the church's proclamation from beginning to end, from creation to new creation, in peacetime and in war, Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. Why do we always add to it? I was thinking about, think about Galatians. Paul's writing his letter to the Galatians, and he's just been there preaching the grace of Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. And his, in his letter to the Galatians, he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. If an angel from heaven should preach another gospel other than the one we are preaching to you, let that angel be under God's curse. What was happening in Galatia? They were adding to Christ. Jesus plus circumcision, the purity laws. Jesus plus, you, you have to be Jewish, right? Jesus plus not eating certain things. Jesus plus the dietary restrictions. Jesus plus. In Galatians 3.15, Paul says, Just as no one can set aside or add anything to a human covenant, so it is in this case. Jesus Christ is the gate for the sheep. Anyone who enters by that gate is saved. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. It happened in Galatians. The first heresy in the church is Gnosticism. Gnosis means knowledge in Greek. And it became a practice that to become a Christian, yeah, believe in Jesus, but then also those who have the special knowledge beyond that are the ones who are, who are, who are truly a part of the faith. In the medieval church, it becomes Jesus Christ plus the blessing of the church, which you really have to purchase through indulgences. And so you have, to, you have to buy your forgiveness. You have, to, you have to really confirm that Jesus has saved you by showing it, by purchasing forgiveness from the church. Jesus Christ plus the nationalistic revelation of the Fuhrer. Jesus Christ and allegiance to a, a, a bullet point list of, of, of things. Jesus Christ plus a political party. Plus the teachings of such and such teacher. We must admit that each of us, sometimes consciously and often not, add things to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we add them to ourselves to our own detriment. Jesus is the gate for the sheep. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. That's good news. It's a simple and singular claim. Christians and the Christian church have one proclamation for the world. Jesus, the gate for the sheep. Nothing more, nothing less.
thought I had another section here. <laughs> I thought it was good too, and now I can't find it. <laughs> Where'd it go? Uh. Oh, the, okay, did this get deleted? Was that the, was that the Holy Spirit deleting it? Um, <laughs> no, what I wanted to say is, um, we've, made, we've made so many things gate issues that are not gate issues, right? Um, and I just wonder, and now listen, I don't want to say there's no value in having conversations that aren't gate, like, there are important conversations that the church should have about life within the flock, and, and we can have conversations about, about the walls and what, what it looks like to, to live with disagreement and what it looks like to be the church. And, you know, there, there's the value in having different types of churches, but we've raised so many things to the level of gate issues that aren't gate issues. Um, and I wonder if the church spent more time talking about how beautiful, how incredible the gate is, and less time describing the walls to people. You know, I wonder if the world would have a more convicting and faithful and beautiful image of what the church ought to be. That's what I wanted to say. <sighs> now, Jesus shifts the metaphor, okay? We've got a whole new metaphor. And Jesus uh, has been talking about he's the gate for the sheep. He's the one that you must approach in order to belong to the communion, to have communion with God. And now Jesus shifts the metaphor as if it's not enough that Jesus makes it possible for us to have communion with God. Now, he says, not only is he the way, the gate, but Jesus Christ is also the good shepherd who comes to get us, who guides us, who brings us to himself. The summer after my sophomore year of college, I was the nature guy at a camp in California. Sonia's really glad I'm talking about this. Um, we, Sonia and I met at this summer camp the summer before. Every morning at 7 a.m., it was my job to go down to the animals and feed the animals. Um, we had goats. We had rabbits. We had, we had a, a bunch of other animals, and it was my job to make sure they had food and water. And, um, and we, also, we had pigs. The pigs were going to be shown at the fair, so I had to like measure out their food to the gram, how much they had, and then kick them when they started eating each other's food. Anyways, um, my girlfriend would come down and watch, but never help. And um, <laughs> during the day, uh, the kids could come and you know pet the animals, and I'd make up facts about them. They'd probably think they're all still true. Halfway through the summer, um, we got a sheep. I don't know where the sheep came from or why we got it, but uh, a sheep showed up, and what became obvious is that the sheep was confused and also not as smart as the goats. It was very dumb. And I had to put its nose right in its food, like for weeks before it realized, this is the stuff I eat. Like, like take the sheep's nose, put it in the food before it would actually eat the food that was there. And I've learned since more about sheep, that maybe it wasn't the sheep's fault because sheep depend heavily on the herd to survive. And when a sheep gets separated from its people and from its shepherd, it dies. It can't survive on its own. It can't fend for itself. It can't figure out where to get water, where to get good food. And the bad news is that Isaiah tells us we all, like sheep, have gone astray. And on our own, it says we each, each of us has turned to our own way. That leads to death. 
there's been plenty of studies to prove this, one by the University of Leeds that shows that in a crowd, it takes only 5% of a group of humans doing one thing to get the other 95% to do it. And there's study after study showing this, that humans are pretty sheep-like. Our herd mentality is strong. It's become pretty popular, I think, in common culture to call someone a sheep as a, a term of offense, as if all of us are in some way sheep, following something influenced pretty heavily by what we're surrounded by, who we follow on purpose or not. We're all sheep. And the question this morning is then, how can we trust this shepherd when so many shepherds have led us astray? How can we trust Jesus as the good shepherd when so many have turned out to be hired hands? Jesus claims here to be the good shepherd that knows our name, the good shepherd who leads us to good places and offers life and life abundant. But it is hard to trust people. I don't know what the first time was that you were let down by someone, by a parent, by a friend, by a family member. It's happened to all of us. Might have been let down by a pastor or a church. Seems like for a while, it was every week in the news, someone else that I looked up to just letting me down. And not and me, not personally, but, you know, all the people they pastored. For me, the most devastating one was Jean Vanier. I don't know if you've heard of Jean Vanier. Gosh, I loved him. Read his books. He was a French theologian, philosopher, thinker, good friend of Henry Nouwen. And he started the L'Arche communities, which are communities for people, for, uh, people with disabilities. It's a global movement now, providing beautiful homes for, for people with disabilities. And he talked so powerfully about the value of human beings. He said, those of us with power and social standing have subtle ways of hiding our inner handicaps, our difficulties in relationships, our inner darkness and violence. I love Jean Vanier. Read so much of his stuff. And after his death, it was a pretty intensive like study that found that 25 women over a period of 70 years had been abused by him. Larsh condemned what they described as, quote, the insidious grooming, the psychological and spiritual exploitation, the intentional use and abuse of power, the sexual violence, the lies, manipulation, and deceit, end quote. Oh. I wrote a, yeah, anyways, I was devastated by that. You know, it's one of these people that you look up to and you think like, if not him, then who? You know, who do I look to? If I can't trust this person, you know, who do I aspire? What do I try to be like? Who can I trust? Maybe you've been hurt by a pastor, by a church community. I've heard too many stories and I want to be careful not to say like, you can trust us. We'll, you know, that's not my point. Who can we trust? A parent's friends, a friend's parents got divorced and they were told that they didn't need to return to church. A 15-year-old boy started dating a non-Christian girl and was told that she can't come to youth group. A woman was dismissed by a pastor after being told that she needed to stay with her abusive husband because that's what a wife should do. A missionary funnels hundreds of thousands in donations to their own investments and the list goes on. You have your own list that you've seen. How do we trust the good shepherd?
God demonstrates his love for us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus' final appeal to his followers in the Gospels is, isn't that he's the most intellectually brilliant. He probably could have made that claim. You should follow me. You should trust me because I'm all powerful and you should be scared of what I could do. God's appeal to us in Christ is that he lays down his life for you. That's a God you can trust. The God that lays down his life for his sheep. In 1882, Louisa Stead lost her husband when he, uh, he ran into the ocean to save a drowning boy. And he himself lost his life. And Louisa Stead um, later wrote the words to this hymn. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus Just to take him at his word Just to rest upon his promise Just to know, thus saith the Lord Do you know it? Sing it with me. Jesus, Jesus, how I love him. How I've proved him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. In a minute, I'm going to have the, the people who are praying come up front. We're going to have people stand up front and um, we're going to have a time of prayer ministry and we'd love to pray for you. It's not just for people who have significant requests and it's not just for, um, you know, special people. It's anyone who wants life and life flourishing. That's they. That's who Jesus came to bring life and life abundant. So we'll have a few people standing up front and you'll be invited to come down the middle. Jane will be playing a little bit of music on the keys and um, yeah, if you have a specific request, we'd love to pray for you. If you don't, maybe I would just encourage you to um, pray for grace to trust him more um, this morning. Maybe that, that could be your prayer. So prayer uh, ministry folks, would you please come forward and we'll spread out at the front. Um, Let's try singing that one more time while, uh, while Leslie gets ready. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus Just to take him at his word Just to rest Just to rest upon his promise Just to know Thus saith the Lord Jesus, Jesus, how I love him, how I've proved him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Amen.